Big close. <laughs> um, good afternoon. Uh, as mentioned, my name is Kirsten McCarty. I'm a partner specialising in shipping um, at Stevenson Harwood. Um, I'm also head of transportation and trade, and I form part of the firm's sanctions uh, team. And I'm here today to talk about sanctions. Um, Um, but as a result of Russia's invasion in 2022, we've seen the international community, um, at least in the EU, US and UK, impose a wide range of sanctions on certain sectors of the Russian economy and its people. Um, as a consequence, I've spent much of uh, the last year advising a wide range of parties on the potential impact of sanctions, including ship owners, ship managers, charterers, financiers, uh, fiduciary service providers, and insurers, insurers on potential sanctions exposure. Um, sanctions is a huge subject, um, and you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to try and cover it all in 30 minutes. Um, but what I am going to try and uh, do is give you a flavour of the types of issues. Um, so we're going to look, say, at the main regimes, um, the consequences of breach, or more accurately, um, the why we should care slide, um, common issues that arise, and what the sanctions landscape may look like in the future. <coughs> so, starting with the main regimes. Um, as I've said, uh, sanctions are not a new issue. Um, for those of us who have been advising on sanctions for a number of years, they've been a common feature, um, at least where economic sanctions have become a favoured foreign policy tool in relation to geopolitical events. Um, over the years, we've seen sanctions against Iran, Russia following the invasion of Crimea in 2014, um, US sanctions against Venezuela, and as well as Cuba. And we've also seen uh, limited sanctions against China in certain sectors. Many in the tank trade will be very fluent in the language of sectoral sanctions, where following the invasion of Crimea, um, sectoral sanctions were a common feature of doing business with the likes of Rosneft and Gazprom. Um, but since the invasion, the EU, US and UN, and the UK post-Brexit, have independent regimes, and whilst they do work together to an extent, there are key differences which are often influenced and determined by political and economic factors. So turning first to the UN, um, historically sanctions began at the UN level in the form of UN Security Council resolutions. And it's probably therefore of no surprise that US, the UN sanctions regime forms the basis of sanctions architecture due to its coverage and the legal basis for sanctions. 
Most of the main regimes, EU and UK included, automatically incorporate the EU sanctions legislation, designation sanctioned entities into their legislation. But what we've seen recently is the move to nationalise the sanctions regime. And actually where we are now is that the UN uh, is often the most limited of the regimes that we are looking at in terms of scope and entities that are sanctioned. Um, so everyone in this room will need to comply with the EU sanctions because we are in beautiful Cyprus at this moment, which is in the EU. And it's fair to say that the EU sanctions are at a level that haven't previously been seen by most operators, where probably up until last year, most of you, when you thought about sanctions, thought about the US sanctions. Um, but when thinking about sanctions, it's always good to go back to basics and consider the, whether the sanctions will actually apply to you. And EU sanctions apply and must be complied with by EU nationals, entities incorporated into the e in the EU, on board any aircraft or vessel under the jurisdiction of the EU, so under an EU flag, um, and also to anyone conducting business within the EU. Um, and unlike the, e the US sanctions, the EU sanctions are expressly stated as not having extraterritorial effects. So if you are not within one of those four, the EU sanctions do not apply to you. But that said, it is worth bearing one point in mind. EU nationals, and when we look at it, UK nationals as well, have to comply with sanctions wherever they are in the world. Now, it is usually possible um, to ring fence EU UK nationals um, if there is a risk that they as an individual may fall foul of EU sanctions or, as I said, UK sanctions. Um, but, nonetheless, a non-EU corporate entity may ne nevertheless still have to comply with EU sanctions if it is controlled by an EU citizen. And to put this into context, if the managing director of a Marshall Islands SPV company, who is based in Hong Kong, is an EU citizen, then that company may well have to still comply with EU sanctions if, through that SPV, the EU um, citizen is conducting business that was otherwise being sanctioned by the EU. To put it another way, it would be no defence for a breach of sanctions by that EU citizen if they said, well, I was conducting my will via a non-EU entity, therefore I am not bound. If you are the brain of the company, you are making the decisions that non-EU entity may by extension be bound to comply with the sanctions, the applicable sanctions. Um, the EU sanctions have been swift and very wide-ranging. <clears throat> we've seen the removal of institutions from the SWIFT, we've seen bans on specific goods and commodities, oil, petroleum products, wood, coal, luxury goods, caviar, furs, as well as certain restrictions on certain services provided to Russian nationals. Um, the m most notable being, uh, particularly for jurisdictions such as Cyprus, 
and where there are a lot of trust companies, the prohibitions on the provisions of fiduciary and trust services to Russian nationals. And most recently, of course, the international community has been grappling with the oil price cap. Um, but whilst the sanctions have been very wide-ranging, many of the exceptions and derogations reflect the dependency on certain aspects of the Russian economy. Um, you may remember that uh, the EU was fairly slow to sanction Spurbank as an exception to a number of the banks, um, in large part due to the number of transactions processed by Spurbank in the EU. And it's striking also that there haven't been any sanctions on um, gas, which was perhaps touched on earlier, where there is generally a dependence in the EU on Russian gas. Um, and it was actually very interesting when I was in Germany recently uh, talking to a number of people who said that they felt that um, Germany was now vulnerable where their foreign policy had been to trade with everyone including Russia and China and they now felt vulnerable where certain sectors of their economy were very much dependent on Russian and Chinese exports. Moving on to the UK sanctions regime, um, a new one post-Brexit, because obviously post-Brexit we um, were just part of the EU. Um, unsurprisingly, EU sanctions and their application largely replicate the EU sanctions, um, although they are obviously concerned with UK citizens and trade within UK borders and territorial waters. And again, as mentioned, like the EU systems, UK nationals have to comply with sanctions wherever they are in the world. Um, in terms of the types of sanctions, again, very similar and follow the same themes as the EU sanctions. Um, we have seen asset freezes of individuals, financial institutions, bans on Russian vessels uh, in UK ports, uh, and which in the early days, people may remember the high profile issues with Sovkin Flot where they were denied entry into UK ports. Um, but there are key differences. Where, for example, the EU was very swift to um, prohibit the provision of fiduciary services, the UK was very slow to implement um, any uh, sanctions or prohibitions on the provision of fiduciary services. Uh, possibly in no um, small part due to our dependency uh, in the London property market on Russian investment. Um, but then conversely, the UK has taken a much harder line in certain areas where, for example, there is a ban uh, on the imports in for LNG and LPG, although perhaps not surprising where, um, as I mentioned, we are not that dependent on those imports. And turning to the US, um, last but by no means least, I should caveat this, I'm not um, a, a US lawyer, but we've obviously seen a number of these issues over the years. Um, US sanctions apply to the US and in the territory of US persons, but significantly, um, US sanctions purport to have extraterritorial effect. In other words, they will apply to non-US persons. 
And over recent years, we've certainly seen this uh, taken into effect in relation to Iran, Venezuela and Cuba, where we've seen non-US people, uh, persons be sanctioned. And I was um, told by a US lawyer that the winds have changed, particularly in relation to Venezuela and Cuba, at least at the time, where OFAC was adopting a sanction first, ask questions later policy. Um, and it's also worth noting uh, that the US will report to have jurisdiction for transactions uh, conducted in US dollars. And where in shipping virtually all of the business is in US dollars, um, US sanctions still remain an important part of any due diligence procedure. Um, Again, in terms of the types of sanctions we've seen from the US in response to Russia, it has been the usual types, individual um, sanctions, banks, various trades, and of course, the oil price cap. Um, a word of caution before we move on from the regimes. Uh, I was asked recently whether um, all of the main sanctions regimes follow each other. So in other words, if you check one for someone who is designated, you can effectively check them all? The answer is no, because um, there are material differences between who is sanctioned and sectors of the industry that are sanctioned between each of the, re the regimes. And so unfortunately there is no shortcut, you have to check them all. Um, consequences of breach, um, or why should we care? Um, and the short answer is money talks. Um, breach of sanctions is a criminal offence, um, but as can be seen from the figures here, the consequences of a breach of sanctions can be financially crippling. Um, and there are also practical issues. Um, we have seen and are aware that if, for example, um, US banks uh, become aware of breach of sanctions or suspected, you may find yourself cut off from the banking chain uh, which can obviously have very serious and negative impacts on your business, on your day-to-day -day business. And given the um, potentially sort of draconian sanction, the draconian penalties that will follow breach of sanctions, parties can find themselves in the rather invidious position where they have to choose between complying with sanctions um, or following their obligations under the contract. Um, I'm not going to stand here and talk you through um, lots of um, interesting case law, um, but just to highlight, there have been two recent decisions uh, in the uh, English High Court, which make clear that it may be possible to pay a frozen bank account in order to comply with your contractual obligations. And both of those uh, cases involve GTLK for the sanctions, um, one of them involving Charterer. So, um, some common scenarios and practical advice. Um, no sanctions talk at the moment would be complete without a quick look at the oil price cap, which was implemented first in December in relation to crude oil products and more recently on 5th December for petroleum products. Um, as you will probably know, there is now an absolute prohibition 
on the transportation of Russian crude and petroleum product products and the provision of related services in relation to that transportation. And the oil price cap regime operates as an exemption from the prohibition to the maritime transport of Russian oil products from Russia, crucially to third countries and between third countries. Um, and the price cap for crude is set at $60 per barrel for crude. Um, the most recent price cap for petroleum products is $100 per barrel for petroleum to crude products which encompasses diesel and kerosene, and $45 per barrel discount crude products such as fuel oil and naphtha. And the level of the price cap will be reviewed periodically, and I believe um, the price cap in relation to crude is up for review this month in March. And just to reiterate, the price cap exemption, the exception cannot be relied upon or invitation into the EU, UK and US respectively um, where each of those countries have implemented the um, price cap. It is effectively prohibited, well not effectively, it is prohibited to import crude or petroleum products into the EU. And just to really um, nail home the point, um, unless products are transported to third countries under the price cap is prohibited for shippers, charterers, financiers, ship managers and insurers to provide services to vessels carrying Russian petroleum or crude products. And for the oil price cap now sets out the information that operators are required to maintain to evidence that the oil has been purchased and transported below the price cap. And the information that is required depends on what tier you fall into as an operator. And there are three tiers. Broadly speaking, tier one is the operator with direct access to the price information of the product. So usually the commodity trader. A tier two operator is one that interacts with that person who has direct price information, possibly the charterer. And a tier three operator is one who has no direct access to price information, the ship owner, ship manager, insurer, and financier. Um, I suspect most here will be mainly concerned with tier three, tier three operators. And the crucial point for a tier three operator is ensuring that they obtain they obtain the required attestation in the EU format from their customer and charterer that the oil has been purchased below the price cap. Crucially, the attestation must be given by the tier three operator's customer. It's not sufficient, for example, for an attestation just to be passed up and down the line addressed to someone else. The attestation must be given and signed and provided for by your direct customer. So a ship owner would need to obtain an attestation from their charterer, a ship manager from their owner, and a financier similarly would need to obtain an attestation from their ship owner. And we've also seen insurers and P&I clubs requesting attestations from their members, uh, some often or often on more stringent terms than the EU model wording. And the issues that have been brought to the fore, um, 
the so-called deceptive shipping practices. And these have become yet more headaches for operators to ensure compliance. For example, we've seen uh, in relation to tanker trade operators that may now be offered oil via an STS operation in international waters from vessels which may be, for example, due to media reports suspected as operating in the so-called dark fleet that we see a lot about. The STS vessel may have black spots in its AIS data or recently changed flag. There may also be questions over the origin of the cargo. Um, two examples uh, I mentioned in the, I was discussing with someone in the break. Whilst not related to oil, um, early on in uh, when all of this happened, we saw a lot of coal cargoes suddenly emerging from Estonia. Um, but you only have to have a quick Google search to find out that 90% of um, coal uh, in Estonia is Russian coal. Similarly, um, in relation to Iran, there was uh, the sort of often touted scenario is the vessel goes into Iranian waters, goes dark, reappears in uh, Iraqi waters, fully laden with certificates of origin uh, showing Iraqi origin cargoes. And the oil price cap has also brought a new level of compliance for operators in terms of ensuring they have the correct attestations from the customer. Um, as ever, when dealing with sanctions, there is ambiguity as to what information um, someone may need and what tier an operator may fall into. For example, if you're there sitting as an owner, you're a tier three actor, but you're asking yourself, whether you need uh, information from your charterer as a tier two actor or a tier three actor because the charterer is also uh, well known, albeit within a slightly different branch of the organisation, as a purchaser and trader and who may actually, whilst operating you know, in two different corporate identities, may be sitting next to each other, uh, physically sitting next to each other in the office. Um, so, what is the answer to these problems? Um, and the short answer really is um, due diligence. Due diligence and sanctions clauses. Um, anyone operating in these fields now needs to ensure that they have an adequate sanctions clause or provisions in any of their contracts, be it finance documents, charter parties, ensuring that if they are going to be participating in Russian oil trades, they have an express right to request attestations, and if they are not provided, that you may well have the right to terminate the contract immediately. Um, moving away from trade restrictions, um, I wanted just to highlight one issue that came up a lot in relation to the issues of individual designations. Um, as you will all have uh, seen. We've seen the so-called oligarchs designated and therefore subject to asset freezes where you're unable to deal with um, assets of uh, that person, that designated person. Crucially, the asset freeze and the prohibition on dealing with their assets extends to assets controlled by them. And the issue then arises as to what is meant by control. And we saw this 
by way of example in relation to the designation of Roman Abramovich, who at the time of his initial designation was a majority shareholder in a company called Everest PLC, who was a commodity trader. And the question arose whether dealing with cargoes belonging to Evraz would breach the asset freeze that applied to Roman Abramovich on the basis that he controlled Evraz. And we've seen this question arise um, a number of times where designated individuals may, for example, have uh, taken the step of um, divesting themselves of their majority share interests to their wife or their children. Do they still exercise control? Um, and when faced with the question, the issue is whether the designated person can be said to control the entity. And we're not talking here about legal control. We're not talking about a situation of 50% of the shares. It extends to factual control. Who factually controls that entity to determine whether it's caught by the asset freeze? Um, and the UK legislation says that you can exercise control by an arrangement. Um, and that arrangement doesn't have to be in writing, it doesn't have to be a legal document, it can simply be a custom. And how I like to put it is like this, if everyone knows that the company is Mr or Mrs X's company, and if that person were to walk into a boardroom and say, I, I want to do this today, it doesn't matter if they have none of the shareholdings and they're not a director, they are the one with factual control. And if that person is a designated person and is able to exercise that control over another entity, that entity will be, be deemed to fall within their control and therefore caught by the asset freeze. So again, what's the answer to these potential pitfalls? And I'm afraid the answer is, again, um, due diligence. Uh, you now need to ensure and put in place um, sufficient compliance to ensure that you can identify these red flags. It's not enough anymore just to simply check the names of the entities that you are dealing with. You need to look behind who sits behind directors, shareholders, UBOs. When dealing with STS vessels, you need to check trading patterns searches in the media which often reveal, for example, that they may be connected with the so-called dark fleet, checking certificates of origin and whether they match um, the movement of the vessel. Banking chains need to be scrutinised and insurances need to be checked. Um, and that's a particular new one, is we're seeing a move now where people want to continue with these trades. Um, that they are moving away from London market insurers and uh, taking up insurers in Russia or India or other uh, places in order to avoid uh, any issues with sanctions which may well impact, um, for example, a financing. And future facing, what's to come? Um, well, these are some of the headlines, and um, as you will see, they have a common focus, which is enforcement. Um, the announcement of the recent 10th European Sanctions Package was uh, very much focused on enforcement, and it mirrored a statement from the UK regulator, OFSI, who has said that it will be training our officers to specialise in enforcement. Similar statements have been issued in the US. And with, over the last year, 
we've probably seen the most coordinated implementation of sanctions and the fastest evolution of sanctions, possibly in a direct generation, if not ever. Um, but the sanctions are now here. And whilst we can expect to see various tweaks to the sanctions over the coming years, people being designated, moved on and off the list, um, we're broadly expecting there to be a more static picture in terms of the sanctions. And as a result, the emphasis is shifting to enforcement. Um, perhaps significantly, rightly or wrongly, um, shipping is seen as a high-risk industry. Um, I mentioned so-called deceptive shipping practices, and these are now a real focus. Um, there is today, possibly going on right at this very moment in time, a briefing in London by Maritime London um, on so-called deceptive shipping practices. Uh, mainstream consultants I've seen, uh, such as Deloitte, PwC, are also now publishing articles about deceptive shipping practices. And like it or not, it means um, the shipping industry will be subject to scrutiny and that the sanctions will be here to stay. So I think my talk can be summed up as this, the importance of due diligence. Um, all of the regulators have um, indicated that companies need to start taking a risk-based approach to their due diligence. As I mentioned, um, it's no longer sufficient just to say, oh, well, we've got a form, it needs to be filled out. If it's filled out, we'll check the names. Questions need to be asked, red flags need to be followed up. Um, and there is a level of ensuring that you have adequate sanctions policies, the right to request information, the right to request attestations, and more importantly, the right to exit those contracts where you feel consider uh, or where you feel following your due diligence there is an unnecessary risk. And I will leave that at that. Thanks so much. Ladies and gentlemen, the same is that first of all you've covered a very, very volatile and controversial topic. Um, <laughs> any questions for the audience? Any questions? That's what we'd like to say. If I may, I can ask one. Oh. <laughs> um, sanctions, obviously we all realise that they're necessary, and uh, it's a matter of principle rather than a matter of fact. But on the other hand, what concerns me is the, this aspect which you went in two or three occasions when you mentioned about due diligence. I mean, how, how long is a piece of string? I'll give an example. Um, years ago, before most of you were born, there used to be the sanctions for, for the Cuba trade. For the States, anybody trading with Cuba was blacklisted. Well, we have to be, uh, we, we had 50 ships got trading with Cuba. In fact, I think uh, your, your dad must have been involved in Cuba as well, no? And what happened there, what used to be happening there is that the, the sugar used to be transported from Cuba to the continent, discharged into warehouses in Spain, usually in Bilbao, and then another ship would come along, God bless them, would load the ship and take it back to the States. Another thing which is a concern, which I hear about today, I'm not, I'm not the facts right, actually, that's really hearsay, is I gather that quite a number of ships which are taking Russian LNG the states somehow discharging in Houston somehow 
and the ships, usually LNG ships, pick up the, the, the cargo from Houston and take it back to the continent. Now, I so say this is hearsay, but it also, one, I mean, when I say hearsay, it's at least directly related to the fact which used to happen years ago with the Cuban trade as well. So I'm just concerned about the fact that the issue that, even though I'm all for the idea of applying sanctions, we have to face, we have a war, we have to find some form of restriction, but are they really enforceable? And secondly, how far is a piece of string in terms of the ship owner in the community, whereby a ship owner may have a transaction with another fellow ship owner, transfer funds into his bank without knowing that the other ship owner has broken the sanctions, then automatically, through the bank, the ship owner who bonafide it without knowing uh, transferred money to a, another fellow owner who was breached breach the regulations, and he finds themselves also being accused of the same thing. So it's a very difficult situation to 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 calm down the, the, the what really happens. So that's why I'm really concerned about your due diligence uh, procedure and how bad it or how enforced it can be. In terms of validity, it is valid. Um, all of the uh, regulators will expect to see a level of due diligence. As I said, it, it's all, all of them give guidance. OFAC, um, UK, EU, as to the types of due diligence, particularly in relation to shipping, operators need to be uh, undertaken. So um, the fact is, it is, it is valid and needs to be undertaken. And more crucially, it needs to be um, more than a box ticking exercise. It is not sufficient to simply hand over a questionnaire, ask for it to be completed and say, well, that's my due diligence done. As to how long is a piece of string, um, again, what the regulators say is that sanctions due diligence is a risk-based approach. Now, a risk-based approach, you need to adopt a risk-based approach. Now, in your examples, um, if you are seeking to comply with, for example, US sanctions, um, you would automatically have, uh, straight away, have a red flag of possibly a cargo coming from Bilbao, which could not, never possibly have come from mainland Spain. And that is your red flag, and you need to investigate it. And you need to identify and satisfy yourself that when you load that cargo, you are based on a risk-based approach, not breaching sanctions. Yes. Um, I wasn't going to raise this, but since you did, uh, George, because I get frustrated with this subject, but. You mentioned the Cuba trade, <clears throat> and um, the fact that, uh, and by the way, these restrictions are still existing, you know, so if you trade to Cuba, you cannot enter the US afterwards for 100 days. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, that's still existing. Um, as European ship owner, we are caught in a trap, ideally. We are, uh, of course, legally entitled to trade with Cuba. Yeah. Um, when we want to trade to the US, we have to comply with US uh, uh, sanction regimes as well. The EU actually has a blocking uh, statute um, that we must not comply with the uh, US uh, sanctions on Cuba. So we're really uh, caught between a rock and a hard place and uh, I find that extremely frustrating. Uh, by the way, if I can add as well, we have some bankers in the room here. Um, the Cypriot uh, banking industry is not very helpful um, to support us with this. But I have a, a question in this respect to you. 
the fact that um, these 180 days ban, this 180 days ban is imposed on the ship owner. Is that the penalty for breaking the sanction? And does that mean that once you, you know, these 180 days have passed, it's perfectly okay? I mean, if you if you break this sanction, you you trade to Cuba and then uh, you don't go to for 180 days, uh, you're cleared. I mean, there's no there's no legal implication after that. that. That's my understanding. It's obviously a U.S. Um, sanctions issue, but yes, that's my understanding. And uh, to your point about the tension between the U.S. sanctions and the blocking regulations, they've actually always existed. It's always been. Um, it's always been there, and even way before sanctions became um, this of uh, this importance, and um, the choice was always that: do you commercially do you run the risk of falling foul of OFAC um, by complying with blocking legislation when historically the EU was fairly weak in terms of sanctions, or do you comply with the US? where um, we've seen OFAC and its history of enforcement being a lot more stringent. And that was always, unfortunately, the choice, and to an extent still is. Yeah, if I may, just a quick word on, um, on the Cyprus banks. Whereas it is not compulsory um, for the Cyprus banks or any European bank to obey U.S. sanctions. The reality on the ground is that Cyprus banks have to work with U.S. banks offering U.S. dollar correspondence services. And this puts pressure on Cyprus banks. And they cannot do their businesses without having U.S. correspondent banks. So this is the reality our banks face. And that is why um, they do carry out the level of due diligence and do have in mind the US sanctions. That's another element that I just wanted to bring to your attention. 